You are listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews with experts from around the world on the issues of human rights and humanitarian law. My name is Jamie Bowd, and we are broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenby Institute in Lund, Sweden. Today's episode will feature the full seminar about violence against human rights defenders and the role of business. The Raoul Wallenby Institute presented this seminar in cooperation with Pharmasud, Swedwatch, Diakonia, Amnesty International, the Swedish Society for National Conservation, FIAN Sweden, and Africa Gruppena. This seminar took place at MR Dagana in Stockholm, Sweden, and features Francis Kimpo from the NGO Center for Environmental Concerns in the Philippines, the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Toxics, Baskut Tunkak, Ambassador for Sustainable Business at the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs, Jacob Kiefer, and Louisa Buch, who is the engagement lead on fair jobs at H&M Global Sustainability Department. The Raoul Wallenby Institute's Stockholm Office Director, Marlon Oud, moderated the event. Thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy this podcast. We have Francis Quimpo, uh, who works for uh, an NGO in the Philippines, uh, working a lot uh, with environmental uh, defenders. Uh, so you'll uh, represent the, the human rights defender's perspective in, in the discussion. Uh, and next to you, we have Bashkut Tunjak, who's the UN Special Rapporteur on Toxics, and who uh, comes across this problem in, in your work uh, in, in different countries. Uh, and you will represent sort of the, the UN perspective uh, on, on these issues. We have Louisa Bouk, uh, who works at H&M. Uh, and we have uh, Jakob Kiefer, who is the Swedish ambassador uh, for sustainable business. So a very welcome, a big welcome to you. Uh, let's start, and, and please keep within your uh, five minutes in the opening remarks, because we want to leave ample time for follow-up questions and also questions from the audience. Uh, so Francis, perhaps uh, if you could start and, and tell us a little bit uh, about the situation in the Philippines. Okay, uh, good afternoon to everyone. Uh, I thank the organizers for uh, bringing us here and uh, meeting you people and for us to share uh, a very serious situation that's really affecting many communities hosting uh, extractive industries like mining in the Philippines. Extracting minerals, uh, timber, water from nature, it's really essential to all our to our survival. It's actually essential for driving development in our society, especially modern society. But we also know that mining is really a very destructive uh, endeavor. It really it destroys mountains, it destroys forests, it uh, uh, results to loss of uh, of biodiversity and uh, pollutes water and it really creates so many problems, including displacement of uh, communities. And it is bad that if, uh, especially if governments who are supposed to regulate uh, these uh, companies are not doing their job and are corruptible, uh, especially like uh, as we are now facing, uh, govern, uh, if this, this extraction of industries are not done for, for food to feed people, uh, it really becomes a big problem, uh, especially that um, they, uh, they always tend to sacrifice social and environmental protocols and really create problems to so many people that it also generates resistance among communities because, of course, who would want uh, their environment destroy, be destroyed and uh, polluted? And uh, actually, th such resistance is very uh, is common in, in several communities, especially rural communities, who are actually are protecting uh, the nature. And uh, it's actually this reason that uh, you can see from the slide that uh, resistance has actually generated, uh, become a very deadly endeavor. Uh, protecting environment has really become a deadly ende endeavor such that we are already deemed second deadliest in the world uh, for environmental defenders. Uh, we have uh, tracked that uh, environmental defenders, 177 are murdered. Uh, yeah, so you can see from the slide the darker colors actually represent uh, the places where most uh, many instances of deaths have occurred. Next slide, please. 
the and this is uh, our president, the, the, this big picture here. Uh, he has a record, uh, two years in office, and he has already caused 62 deaths. But the, the other figures here are uh, the records of other past presidents. So we have been experiencing uh, killings of, among environmental defenders for the past. But it seems uh, we thought then that uh, during this lady president we had, uh, this was in 2001 to 2010, uh, six, uh, we had the worst environmental uh, defender uh, killings, but actually it was stopped by the next president, uh, President Aquino. But uh, yeah, it was not the worst. Uh, something worse really happened because our current president actually for just two years have killed so many. Uh, and most of the killings actually uh, are in areas which hosted mine, mining. And 76% uh, of that 62 number are actually brought, uh, are, have governments uh, confirmed state uh, caused by uh, confirmed state armed forces. And that most of the victims are really the poor people, uh, small farmers, small fisher folk, and indigenous peoples. Uh, which means the rest are actually, some of them are religious people, lawyers, like the very recent one, uh, uh, professionals who are also supporting the cause of communities. Next slide, please. This is a picture of our colleagues, of our other environmental defenders who have uh, uh, been killed in the course of their work. There's a Bhutanist, a radio commentator, uh, a, a Dutch volunteer, an engineer, the youth, and uh, a, a priest, an Italian priest, an Italian missionary. And then, next slide, please. Uh, you will see here pictures of uh, victims. Uh, uh, this lady is a um, survivor because her father, along with six other uh, indigenous groups who were just supposed to plant, were murdered. And uh, because they do not want to give up their claim on the ancestral domain, and, uh, but someone is buying, interested in getting the land. So next slide. This is again uh, another uh, tribal leader. He is actually, she is actually a, a chieftain of one tribe. Uh, again, fighting a um, uh, mining company, a big, big company. Uh, yeah, next. And this is the uh, a lawyer. She ju he just was killed uh, uh, five days ago. Uh, yeah. So what we're actually here for is that. We want this repression to stop. Actually, my T-shirt actually says it all, but this is actually an old T-shirt. This was our T-shirt when we were fighting uh, uh, killings during uh, the lady president term, but we didn't know things were, will be a lot worse now. So we hope you join us in, the, uh, in our uh, efforts to really stop the killings and, uh, and impunity. Thank you very much, Francis. I'll help you with that. But, <laughs> Thank you, Bashkut. This isn't just a, a problem in, in the Philippines or in the mining sector. Uh, it, is, uh, it is a problem in many different countries. What's, what's your experience uh, in your role as UN Special Rapporteur? What's, in which countries do we see this happening? And do you have some examples? And, and perhaps particular, what, what, is, what, what role is business playing in this? Well, thanks, Mullen, and, and, and thanks, Francis, for, for giving the, the, the case of your country. Um, unfortunately, from what, what, what I am seeing in, in the course of my mandate is that this is a, a widespread issue that's present, uh, directly or indirectly, implicating all countries of the world. What we're facing today is, is a global crisis that's facing human, human rights defenders. Um, certainly governments are, are, are uh, playing a big role, uh, either through their actions or their inactions, but businesses equally are playing a, a very, very important and, um, and uh, I would say underappreciated role in, in how this uh, this crisis is unfolding and, in my view, escalating. Um, 
The, the headlines that we see about human rights defenders around the world are, are shocking and rightfully so. Um, hundreds being killed every year uh, with the numbers increasing. Uh, but in my view, the, this only represents the tip of the iceberg. What, what, I've, what I've seen in the course of, of the, the missions, the country visits that I've done, is that there's a large number of killings even that are going unreported. Um, but even greater still are the number of harassments, the, the oppression of human rights defenders, um, the intimidation and other forms of attacks against human rights defenders that form essentially a huge underbelly of oppression against human rights defenders. And what we see in these headlines in terms of the killings are, are outrageous and, right, and rightfully capturing the attention of the international community. But I think we need even greater attention to this crisis because there's a lot that isn't being told, a lot that isn't coming out into the media. Um, and it's, it's not for, for no reason that the, the extractive industries have been, have been a, central, um, a central sector to be focused on. There are a number of cases implicating extractive industries for a number of, of very legitimate reasons, including the poisoning of, of communities and workers that are working in these industries. Um, but the latest figures that we're seeing is actually that there are other industries that are playing an even greater role in attacks against human rights defenders. For example, the, the agricultural sector. In the last report by Global Witness, the agricultural sector was actually the one uh, that was linked to the greatest number of killings. And, and it's not just simply about producing food, but it, it actually implicates a whole range of consumer products, including the products that, that are, are using textiles, including the products that are using uh, palm oil as well. Uh, manufacturing activities, whether for workers or industrial emissions, are also front and center. Um, and so we need to take a, an approach to this issue that doesn't just simply isolate it as being one of extractive industries, but this is something that touches directly or indirectly all sectors of our global economy, from investors up until waste disposal companies. This is, this is a, a critical issue for all companies to be addressing. In, in some of my missions, what I, what I have seen is, um, are just quite shocking attacks. Uh, in, in fact, in some cases in front of my face against human rights defenders. When I was in Peru looking at the situation of contamination in the Amazon, uh, from decades of oil extraction uh, and the failure of companies to remediate their, their oil pollution. Um, a few hundred meters from me, one of the indigenous leaders that was advocating for these companies to remediate was shot at. And, and he wasn't shot at by um, armed forces or some, some hired assassins, but he was actually shot at by other indigenous communities because of the conflict that's created between these communities about the threat to their jobs and their livelihoods on the one hand, um, and on the other hand, their right to a healthy environment, their right to breathe clean air, drink clean water, and eat safe food. And, and I think um, this, this sort of, of uh, attack against human rights defenders, businesses also play a key role in, mm. in alleviating the conflicts that erupt and, and trying to, to minimize the impacts as much as possible. Yeah. This is something we will get back to because we want to discuss <coughs> not just when businesses are directly involved in, uh, in human rights abuses, but when they can somehow be linked uh, as well, uh, which this would be an example of. Um, perhaps, uh, do you want to stop there and, and we can move over to Luisa or you? Sure, I could yeah. stop. Yeah. yeah, I could give other no, examples yeah, too, if please. you'd like. Yeah, give, give another couple of examples, and then we'll move sure. on to Luisa. I'd be happy to. So, um, one of one of the cases that was recently brought to our attention was a case in India. Some of you may have heard of this case in in the spring of some community activists. In fact, thousands of them who were protesting a copper plant in their community that was poisoning their environment. Uh, and the police forces tragically killed 13 of these protesters. And, and this, this company that was operating the, the, the plant in India was actually a subsidiary of Vedanta Limited, which is a UK-based company. 
Um, and, and the linkages were very tight between these com this UK-based company and the operations in India. And, and in our view, as, as mandate holders of the Human Rights Council, we felt that the UK company should have played a much stronger role in trying to minimize the, the potential for this eruption of conflict and deadly violence. Um, and one other case that I'll mention, just to, to show that it's not simply an issue of, of countries that are in low or middle income categories, is, is the situation that I saw in the United States. Some of you may have heard of the Standing Rock protests a few years ago. Um, I, I had the opportunity to visit Standing Rock at the request of some of the indigenous leaders there. And what I saw was excessive police violence against the peaceful protesters, using rubber bullets, attacking them on, from horses and, and up above. And, um, and this, this really, to me, drove home that this is an issue that really needs to be embedded within uh, businesses, within the culture that's, that's had, but also within governments. Mm. So, mm. Yeah. Thank you. <coughs> Luisa, we've invited you and you've accepted to be part of the panel, which is uh, wonderful because few businesses actually do. Uh, they get very nervous when, when they're asked to participate in a, in, in a panel like this, so mm -hmm. we really appreciate that. Uh, and perhaps you could start by saying a little bit about how um, this shrinking space that we see for, for the shrinking civic space we see around the world uh, today, how it affects H&M uh, before we start talking about violence against human rights defenders specifically, how, what, why, why should business care about civic space? Uh, why is that an important uh, issue for, for business? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and uh, thank you for, for having us. I think uh, I wasn't aware that I was going to be that nervous, but now that you say it, maybe <laughs> I should be nervous. I, I, I'm, n I'm not really. I, uh, I think this is a very, very important topic, and I don't think there's any sort of discussion about the shrinking civic space. I think we see multiple evidence of that happening today. Um, and I think the traditional view uh, from the company's side is, oh, this is outside the supply chain. This is outside, you know, we don't own our factories, but it's outside those we collaborate with or, uh, in our case, coming from, from my industry. But that's not the case anymore. Um, and I think I have some very concrete examples. And, and Molly, you asked me to prepare what's company's role and, and how do you work with it. Mm. So I was thinking, I'll address your question, but, I, but I'll also set the stage a little bit. Because uh, I think I agree with you, Basket, that um, everyone should work on this. And I, when I had to reflect and prepare a bit the answer, I was thinking it's twofold. One thing is the preventative approach that you do. I mean, a lot of sustainability work, and especially within the social sphere, uh, has been quite reactive, right? In the 90s, we had child labor. It was, oh, that's happening. That's not good. Let's do something about this. We have this golden opportunity to work preventatively in this case. And I think um, shrinking civic space, absolutely, but human rights defenders have been victims for, for a number of years, and I mean, for a long time. Um, so, um, so I have to say, one of the things that we already do is the sustainable work that we drive. Uh, coming from H&M, it's hard to answer for all companies, so I'm going to focus on what we do and, and how we see it. Uh, but I mean, we believe in presence, so that's why I have 800 staff uh, employed in the Bangladesh, our own office, that are constantly in contact with suppliers, that is following up with the local uh, organizations and those working on the ground and following up on the temperatures. So, I mean, that's something we really believe in. Uh, I think linking to that, a very concrete example is uh, Myanmar. I'm sure many of you have heard of the Rohingyas and the situation there. Uh, we were asked by a number of actors, so you should pull out, you should not accept this. But if we pull out, it, it's not an easy question, right? I mean, yes, you make a statement, but what about the people on the ground and then uh, losing of jobs and, you know, it's, it's these, uh, we believe in presence uh, from coming from this company. Um, and then I think also civic space is so important. And Molly, this is entering your question in terms of education. I mean, we've done a number of, we have, we have a lot of workshops with uh, suppliers and, and uh, workers in the factories. One of them is definitely, we did um, a pilot in uh, China together with a company called Quizzer, that's a startup, where you learn about your rights through an app. So instead of having somebody sort of screaming for 5,000 people, uh, you can learn it through an app. It's uh, more efficient. Uh, and um, I mean, that's, that goes into that civic space, knowing your rights, knowing that you 
because that's not something coming from Sweden, that's something we take for granted. But that knowledge is not always there, right? So that's definitely a very important uh, part of it. And in order to do that, then you can have democratically elected worker representatives. Then you can have, you know, that it kind of is a wheel where everything is linked to everything. So I think that's, that's a big role we do, or, or that we take. Um, uh, I also think that this is a space that goes into our inclusion and diversity work. I think that's, when I thought about this and coming into today, I was thinking somewhere it starts with an exclusion, right? It's like an exclusion from having the right to, to have those basic civil liberties fulfilled. So that is definitely an area that we're, um, we're also working uh, tremendously on. And that we see both, of course, in production countries, but also in retail countries, South, uh, such as, for example, South Africa. So that, that's a very concrete example. And then driving forward, I just want to say, I know Malin, it's, uh, I never stick to time, so one more minute. Uh, I just want to say also um, that this is something that is happening within the networks that we're part of. So there's some, something in London called the Ethical Trading Initiative. It's a global organization. I don't know if you've heard of it, but we're members there. And they have sent out a framework on how to address this very specifically. So I'm saying this is something that is happening now. That draft is even confidential, so I can't sort of share what's in it, but it's something that they sent out now to all members to agree on a systematic way of addressing these issues. Uh, and then we're also, uh, last year we became members of the Business and Human Rights Resource Center. That's another um, networking sort of gathering hub or uh, organization that is also based in London, and they started uh, a network called uh, Business Network for uh, Civic Rights and Human 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 Rights Defenders. That's like a long name, um, and we decided to be part of that. And that is really to share knowledge, to share uh, best practice, to engage because it's a little bit of a new area on how to go fully into it, to really tackle it directly. And we see a growing expectations from everyone that we do take that role more strongly in the world today. Yeah. Thank you, Louise. I'm sure there's lots of questions, both sure. uh, from the audience and, and from our... You should feel free also to ask each other uh, questions eventually. But first, we will um, uh, give the floor to Jakob. You, in this panel, you and, and in your work, you represent the Swedish government uh, yeah, in these issues. Yeah, we do. Uh, and Government and of sorts, I can say, because we are in a bit difficult situation in Sweden with right. The, uh, we don't currently have government. a government. Yeah, but, but but I will do speak from from that perspective. Mm -hmm. And if you allow me, uh, first of all, thanks to my panelists and thank you to the organizations. I think this is an, a tremendous, important uh, topic, and I'm really touched about your your uh, your wit you bear witness today what you have seen in your own country. I'm really concerned about that. I uh, did not know it was so severe until I started reading up on this before coming here. I would like just to share a few views on, on what, what I do and a little bit what I've done. I've only been in this job for uh, two months. But uh, Jakob, yeah. just, just yeah. uh, the question that I w would like you also to address, because this is maybe something that not everyone is exactly familiar with uh, in accordance with the UN guiding principles. We have more clarity now on what is the responsibility of the state yeah. and what is the responsibility of business in relation to uh, human rights. So. Perhaps you could that. also yeah. say a few words about what what is what is your responsibility to make sure that sure. Uh, Swedish companies uh, respect human rights yeah. uh, also abroad. But if you if you allow me, I, I will certainly do that. But I, I would like just to see a little bit uh, why I have this role. We don't have so many CSR or ambassador for sustainable business in the world, but basically the the foundation is that we want our business to go global. We want more companies to be in the world so we can have our welfare state. That's basically the, 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 our uh, reasoning for doing this. We want our companies to be successful, take market shares. Uh, at the same time, uh, having that strategy, we have also uh, increased uh, the pressure and the efforts for companies to do it right. It matters how business is conducted. So our clear expectation, Marlon, to, to answer your question, is that we, we fully expect the companies to adhere to international conventions. Uh, be it the multinational guidelines of OECD, uh, the Business and Human Rights uh, Convention, and other things that, that we have been talking about. Uh, and uh, for us, um, today, when we talk about sustainability, 
uh, it's, it's such a vast, com uh, complex uh, area. When I dealt with this uh, 10 years ago, it was 10 principles, human rights, social, environment, and, and corruption. And today we have added on all the SDGs, 17 goals that basically touch upon all human activity. Uh, so I think uh, it's extremely important we have this type of seminars, uh, leading it back also to the human rights, which was the, actually the first principle of Ruggie in, in 2000, uh, early 2000, where we put, put that forward. Uh, and we have also put out a little bit more specificity on, on, the, on these principles, not only working with, the, with human rights, the working conditions, uh, environment, and corruption. We've added gender equality, like you mentioned, ethics, diversity, and sustainable taxation. So that is a bit uh, our framework. Um, what we try to do, and what I have to do, is to be representing the government international uh, negotiations. We have a negotiations taking place of sorts over the global convention uh, for business and human rights. It's not going so well. We can get back to that topic. Uh, we try to uh, be partners to our business, to NGOs in the field. I don't think we have the right competence, to be quite honest. Uh, our embassies are, are small. Uh, and it's quite a difficult uh, subject for us. But what we try to do is to train our uh, diplomatic staff, people working with business, to also be aware of the CSR. Uh, in some countries, we do have some presence. In China, we have a CSR center, uh, a quite successful one, I would say. And I know H&M is there to, to see that we're actually going beyond the immediate uh, place of sourcing, for example, going beyond that and, and looking into the, to the matter. Uh, and we also try to spur our agencies, uh, which are quite a few. Uh, so I think that's what we try to do. We try to get out the message and train ourselves. Uh, but perhaps the most clear example we can do is to make sure we have our own house in order. We have approximately 60 billion of worth in our 47 state-owned enterprises. And I think we have shown some leadership, partly due to mistakes in the past, in human rights, but also in all the fields, uh, coaching uh, boards, coaching CEOs, and taking leadership. And I think we've been recognized for this. Now, um, to your question, Marlin, uh, there's no doubt about it that uh, uh, there's no uh, way any state can escape their uh, duty to protect, to protect human rights. And there's, for us, no doubt that company has to respect and do no harm when it comes to, to this. And we also expect companies to do their own due diligence uh, so there can be remedy and grievances. That's what we expect. We don't have legislation for the time being. Uh, we have legislated that companies have to do sustainability reporting. Uh, companies that have more than 250 uh, staff have to do uh, sustainability reporting. And this just was a decision taken a few years back. So we want to see how that plays out. Uh, we have a national contact point. I'm the chairman for that group. Uh, we've had a few human rights cases being brought forward. Uh, and that's a collaboration that we do with government, uh, with the industry, and with the trade unions uh, in Sweden. And usually we are able to come to a, a fairly successful uh, outcome in, in these uh, debates. Uh, the cases that you have brought forward today uh, are so severe uh, that it would probably be outside my scope. We are talking about uh, murders, we're talking about uh, violations in every aspect. Uh, and I think uh, one of the things that we also work with is corruption. There's a reason for this, uh, for, for this is happening. Weak laws, weak institutions, or strong laws, weak institutions. And uh, enforcement is not there. Uh, and I think uh, maybe we have not done enough to combat uh, corruption. Because it doesn't matter what type of reporting H&M is doing or whatever company is doing if the enforcement is not there. And corruption is, is really a complex issue. I worked in China, I worked in Latin America, and I can certainly see how that is, is, is tearing up the society and make it almost impossible sometimes, even if you had the best will in the world to do the right thing. Uh, I expect my companies to do that. I don't think we have had, seen any Swedish companies involved, but we are sub-suppliers. Our companies are sub-suppliers to the mining sector. H&M uh, is certainly sourcing from many places. And I think we have a lot of things to contribute, but we have to take more steps. And I think the more you go into one sector and the next sector, you will find more things. And that is what's happening in textile. I think it's happening in, in, in the area of, of mining. 
but there are certainly other areas too where we, we need to do more. Mm. So just, just an, an outline, <coughs> Malin, a little mm -hmm. bit uh, of what I try to mm. do. And uh, uh, again, thank you very much for, for sharing your, your views and, and uh, looking forward to so a good debate. Thank you. Uh, um, Francis, perhaps you could uh, reflect a bit on what you've heard now, maybe from H&M and also from, from the Swedish uh, ambassador for sustainable business. Uh, they've talked a bit about preventative efforts, uh, CSR center. Uh, what do you think would be the one action that businesses uh, should take in order to uh, improve this situation? Uh, of course, we, we are also familiar about efforts of businesses to really do a good job uh, uh, while profiting from, uh, from natural resources or from, from different industries. Uh, but it really, I, I don't know, perhaps it, it, is, it is indeed possible, but from our experience in a developing uh, country like the Philippines, uh, this has never been something that's not, uh, cannot really be seen in actuality or in reality. Uh, we actually have uh, enough laws, uh, environmental, setting environmental standards, also uh, recognizing some, some right, uh, rights of communities. But uh, laws in the Philippines are really just something you see on paper. It's not really enforced. So that has really been going on for the several decades that I have really been uh, active uh, on human rights and environmental issues. And uh, that's why it's really creating very uh, more, more resistance from communities. So uh, I guess it really is, it, it is possible for, for communities, but what's really very important for perhaps in some countries is for, for go uh, governance, there should really be strong governance, the one, ones who will really check uh, how private business are, are doing, especially when we deal with the natural resources. Uh, when you lose government in terms of regulating, in terms of enforcing policies, then uh, our resources, our people will all be vulnerable to the race for profit of co companies. And I guess that's the reason why so many of them are flock uh, to the Philippines because our, our enforcement of laws and uh, uh, environmental and uh, human rights standards are really very, very poor. And uh, it really leaves only uh, initiatives of communities and civil society to do something to correct this situation. You are currently listening to the Rao Wallambai Institute's On Human Rights podcast. Keep updated with our latest work and events by joining our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn pages. Pascal, can you say something about uh, one, one action, uh, perhaps both on part of government, states, governments and, and business that should be taken in order to improve the situation? What, what is your view on this international treaty, for example? That's Just one action. Yes. One action. Yep. <laughs> well, um, gosh, looking at no, the No, you're allowed to say several can, actions, can I? yes. Okay, <laughs> thanks. So one, one action for businesses, I think, that's underutilized is the ability to use the leverage that they have through their investments in countries to improve the situation, both in terms of environmental performance, both in terms of the protection of human rights defenders. Um, I'll give an example. So when, when um, a series of bloggers and journalists were being uh, imprisoned, essentially, in, in Vietnam, Myself and other rapporteurs, we sent a series of allegation letters, press releases, and so forth, and we received zero response from the government. None, basically. They, they said, it's, it's our own business, uh, it, it's a matter of national concern, and uh, it's not a human rights issue. However, when we sent an allegation letter regarding working conditions involving the largest foreign investor in Vietnam, they, they responded very quickly, very <laughs> adamantly, and um, it, was, it was almost like a night and day response in terms of their engagement and concern about an allegation of working conditions in the country versus an allegation of 
unfair and unjust detentions against bloggers and, and other human rights defenders. Um, I, I use that as an example because I think that that illustrates how much power and how much concern the governments have when it comes to foreign investment by businesses and the ability to use that and businesses should be using that and not turning a blind eye to the situation in countries but instead using that to improve the situation, to strengthen the protections. Um, both in terms of the environment and the damage to the environment which is driving a lot of the the fact that we have these human rights defenders because the environment is deteriorating in many communities and, and the, the protections that should be afforded to defenders that feel that their lives are in danger or they're being harassed or intimidated otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, do you want me to continue on to states? No, no, maybe yeah. uh, ask uh, Luisa uh, and, and Jakob to uh, address the question of voluntary guidelines uh, versus or uh, is there a need for regulation and law? Uh, is there a need for an international treaty? Uh, what's what's H&M's perspective on this? Um, yes, we, we get asked this uh, a lot in terms of like voluntary or on several topics. And I think, uh, should it be put in international law writing, we're very happy to abide. Uh, from our perspective, it is that we're very, uh, we are working preventatively. We are out there and we're doing a lot. So. Um, I just think sometimes, like, if you're a really big company working with this, like me, uh, a multinational, maybe the demands on me should be much higher than on a small, medium-sized enterprise with not that much uh, leverage and so on. So putting something into law, it will have to be, I don't know if that's going to be, uh, do you see what I mean? Because if I'm already here working and sort of having this responsibility, putting it into law will then then all of us are in the same level because, so maybe if you do it, and that's why I love um, the UN guiding principles uh, on business and human rights. I love because those are guiding principles, but they can be adjusted to every, to who you are within the business sector. Mm -hmm. um, and that I'm in very much in favor of. I mean, I seldom get starstruck, but I was trained by Professor John Ruggi at Harvard on the UN guiding principles. Um, on the UNGPs and and it was such an experience. That's when I couldn't speak. But actually. but it's been so. they they were endorsed and adopted in 2011. Mm. It's been a few years. How mm. much is really happening in terms of human rights due diligence? There was a corporate human rights benchmark mm -hmm. came out yep. the results uh, yeah. the other day and yeah. and the record is pretty dismal. Uh, mm. Very mm. few companies do human rights due diligence. Mm. So why not? Why not make it mandatory? Maybe mm. Jakob, you could sure. also yeah, address and that. Just yeah. To clarify, we're not yeah. against making yeah. it mandatory. I'm just uh, problematizing that. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Mm. I think this is an extremely interesting discussion. I, I, uh, first on the point on using it leverage, I, I was at one of the bigger uh, companies in Sweden, a state-owned uh, partly, uh, and they will do exactly that on their sub-suppliers. Higher demands, and not only from the in, from the direct supplier, but also the, the suppliers, sub-suppliers in turn. Uh, and of course, I have leverage, uh, tremendous leverage. Um, I would expect uh, a Swedish company that uh, is supplying uh, something apart, for example, in mining, if it's uh, Epiroc or uh, Sandvik or somebody of those, that they should be concerned. Do I see my equipment in an illegal mine? Uh, would I feel comfortable as a CEO seeing my equipment being used in a situation where this is happening? I think the case is not uh, any conspiracy on the part of the International Business Committee. I think it's a lack of, of, uh, of competence, lack of knowledge. How do I as a businessman uh, adapt to the human rights? Do I have the competence within my board? I read an article uh, that only 4% of people on the board bring sustainability to the table in, a, in the US. 4%. That's how much uh, the competence in the, in the global board is. Mm. So how can I as a CEO or, or, or a chairman of a big corporation be confident that I have the competence within my business that we are doing the right thing? And if I find something, how, how do I do this? Do I write it in my sustainability report that it has been, yeah, probably you should, but how do you go about it? And I think that's where we have to really work closely with the actual things happening on the ground. Uh, I know people are very keen on legislation. We have a legislation against anti-corruption in the OECD. 
We have global conventions that were taken in 1948 by the UN, by all states. We agreed to those principles. We agreed to, to use them. Do we need laws? Yeah, probably we do need some laws. Uh, but I'm not sure uh, that the laws that France has implemented will change things. I know there's a lot of things that we, we need to do. And I, I think if and when we do it, we really need to do a thorough uh, due diligence on the law itself, whether this will be really a law with tooth. Because we don't need another global convention that is mandatory, that doesn't really meet up its standards. Mm -hmm. That will only undermine uh, the UN system, basically. So I think we have concern mm -hmm. about the, the way um, the, the current discussion mm. has been going, mm. uh, but I think it's, it's a discussion we have to continue. It's not that, I, that we don't want to discuss it, but we want a format that is more inclusive, and maybe the scope should also, like you said, uh, include state-owned companies or national companies, not only transnational companies. Yeah. Quick reflection on that, uh, Luisa and Bashkut yeah. yeah. and Francis, and then we're going to open up uh, the floor for questions. So, Luisa? Yeah, I just wanted to address one thing that was actually sort of the third uh, strand, because I think uh, what you said, Francis, about laws and law enforcement really struck a chord. Um, it was, uh, I've been in the field uh, in, in East Africa, it's the same there. Uh, Tanzania had beautiful laws, but then you come to enforcement, right? Mm. So how do you do that as a company? Because we're a bit dependent on the government. I mean, we're in the country and we're having, we're doing business there. Mm. So I'm seeing this actually as a really, really good, uh, way of collaborating with the NGO sector. I think we say this in a lot of seminars I've been to, we talk about cross-sectoral collaboration, cross-sectoral collaboration, but what does that mean? So this is a field where an organization has like a bigger, um, what do I say, bigger space or yeah, to take in this, and I can be sort of a supportive a little bit in the background. And I think that's, and those are discussions that are go ongoing. So here it's really for, to find that this is a common space where we can uh, benefit from each other. Yeah, thank you very much. Bashkut? Um, thank you. Well, I just wanted to reflect a little bit on the, the negotiations for um, transnational corporations or a legally binding instrument on business and human rights. And I, I've participated in the last two negotiations and I found, um, I found the discussions very interesting and I would completely echo what, what Jakob was saying about having a more inclusive format. What I found really frustrating about the format was the, the lack of businesses that were there. There was mm. only a few mm -hmm. trade associations that were participating and representing a very narrow sliver of businesses that, mm. that are actually, or what, what businesses are actually doing and, and misrepresenting it. To echo what you were saying about that benchmark that came out just a few days ago, when, when I do country visits, I, I often meet with chemical companies who are usually right smack in the middle of um, extractive industries and manufacturing concerns uh, related to toxic products. And mm. what I've found is only one company in, in the missions that I've done that is actually doing human rights due diligence for the toxic chemical products that they're producing. Mm. They, may, they may have human rights due diligence for, for child labor in their supply chain, but no chemical company is going to have really hum child labor in their, in their production facilities, for example, I mean, this day and age. It's, it's the due diligence is not being done with respect to the actual human rights risks that these, these companies are, are creating. And, and in my view, this, this instrument is, is the right step forward in trying to get countries to require what should be required. That doesn't mean that states need to wait until this instrument comes forward to have mandatory human rights due diligence on companies appropriately tailored. But but we need to, to move the agenda forward and, and having a binding obligation should not come as a shock, I think, to, to companies in this mm. day and age. Mm. Yeah. Francis, some, some <coughs> reflections on that yeah. and then we'll open up the floor. Yeah, I, I tend to agree to Pascal's uh, point uh, because uh, although, of course, in our, in our context, it's really, we, we really see that uh, government, the governance is really a, a, key, a key role in pushing for fair and uh, clean uh, path to development. But when government does not really have a clear vision of how to use the mineral wealth that we have or how to use the natural wealth we have for the development of our people, which is actually the case right now, most of our resources are all lost and uh, destroyed. 
Uh, all, uh, most of them, if they are extracted, are actually exported to big developed countries to really use fabricate them, and we're all left with uh, this, uh, the environmental problems that they have created because government cannot enforce them. So uh, actually, I see the uh, value, I put value to these this efforts to really push a, a legally binding treaty well, that can also pressure both government and business to uh, do more uh, due diligence in how extractive industries operate because uh, I think we have seen that in the recent development among Latin American countries signing up to a, to a legally binding treaty on business and uh, how they should operate on. And I think that's one dream that perhaps civil society in the Asia-Pacific region would also like to have, although it will really be, uh, we see also the bigger challenge there because most of the governments in the Asia-Pacific are uh, uh, quite uh, autocratic, uh, like uh, of course uh, some governments in Latin America, which has, which we think they are more progr progressive. But uh, yeah, we really hope for some some real uh, intergovernmental binding policies that will really correct uh, these problems that we see on human rights and environmental protection. Mm. Thank you. So let's uh, take some, some questions uh, from the audience. We have uh, 10, 15 minutes uh, left. Anyone who wants to uh, ask a question? Don't be shy. Yes. Uh, wait for the mic. Hello. Um, I have a question for the H&M representative, and I forgot your name. Luisa. Um, Luisa. Luisa. Yeah, it's all good. I, um, I'm wondering if you're also looking into the indirect threats, uh, such as, for example, if you have a high demand very fast of a product and you excel the, the, the uh, capabilities of a factory, that might also make that factory branch out into other factories. So those are the kind of indirect actions that I think are very common in your line of business. Mm. Are you also aware of that when you're doing your due diligence of human rights? Uh, yeah, good question and good point. Um, that's what we call purchasing practices in our business. Um, uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, we, we have the, I would say, advantage in many ways in terms of environment, but we ship our goods everywhere. We don't fly in. So th that means planning needs to happen way before, and we have a huge uh, logistical department that are taking care of that planning. And that part with the purchasing practices is very, very important not to do last minute orders. So before we place orders, we also have capacity uh, building workshop with the supplier. Even before you like, have entered into an agreement, we do that to make sure that the capacity is there. And then also before, uh, first of all, we have minimum requirements they need to fulfill, and that's a certain list. But following up, I think we have now 750 questions that we do, and also talk to the supplier about and follow up and make sure that they understand. So if you read a certain word, it means the same for you and for me. So, I mean, I must say there we have quite the diligent process. But, uh, I mean, we're not, it doesn't mean it never happens. You can do that and still... So that's where the remedy part of the UN guiding principles comes in, like if something should happen. So absolutely, but a really good question. Good point. Can I say something, Marlene, about yes. to ask Jacob about? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I just wondered because I think sometimes being in Sweden now, uh, and I am, we have an international crowd here, but from a Scandinavian perspective, we're quite value-based, and I always seen that as an uh, opportunity, Jacob. So I'm wondering about, because uh, we tend to be quite, still quite, uh, now I'm here representing my company, but we're talking about companies, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering the collaboration with Norway and Denmark, because we're quite similar in the way we have a rights-based approach, I would say, most of us, and not saying there are always exceptions, et cetera, but is that a way we can like unite and sort of uh, export some kind of, right-based model to the, to the world? Because we're not that aligned between the countries as I see it from a business uh, no, network perspective. No, it's certainly true. I think uh, in some areas, uh, for example, in Chile, we were able to, to form a, a group of the Nordic mm -hmm. countries mm -hmm. uh, under the, you know, the ambassadors uh, of those countries. But it's nothing, 
not, yeah. that's not done as a, as a general uh, rule of thumb, uh, mostly because we work mainly within uh, the framework of the European Union. Uh, and the European Union are doing quite, quite a lot of good things, uh, which not always are, are, are um, noted by, by a, a larger uh, group. Uh, but I think certainly, and when it comes to the, to the model and value base, I mean, uh, 100, 150 years back, we had child labor in this country. I mean, it's, it's not mm -hmm. that, we have, that we have been a perfect uh, model, but we have learned through the years and through decades that collaboration works, higher standards, yields higher productivity, a collaboration between trade unions and, and employers yields a, a better result in terms of training. We, it's basically our, our, our history, and I don't, maybe it's values, but also it's, it's a, a learning experience. And the question is, can you export, for example, a good relationship within a company? Uh, when you li listen to the Philippines, it's, it's almost like the worker is here on the bottom, and up there is, is a company that maybe pay salaries if you're lucky. It, it, it sounds a little bit like that. And then if something happens, the state is here, not protecting its own citizen here. So, it, so the gap is so vast from the situation you're describing. But if you take the case of Chile, for example, that has, has a, a, another situation, we have been quite able and fortunate to work with the, the Ministry of Labor, working with the trade unions there, and trying to use our companies on the ground, which employs approximately 16,000 people in Chile, as a model for other companies to take after. And if you take the mining sector in Chile, of course there are issues, there are problems, but not comparable to what I've heard from what you have been describing. Peru, different story altogether. Uh, a lot of illegal mining taking place, a lot of small mining uh, in the Amazonas, very difficult to get to. Um, and they were trying to talk to our industry, how do you do when you find a Volvo truck or a Scania truck being used in that? Are you aware of this? No, we don't have track because it's been sold in the third or fourth uh, generation uh, down the road. Twenty years later, you find your truck. And they're concerned about it. They don't want to be, uh, you know, uh, associated with that type of activity. And there we have a work to do, I think, as, as embassies or uh, Business Sweden can work together with the business to be able to track. And we can do it together with other uh, missions as well. So I, certainly we can export our values, but at the end of the day, I think it's, uh, it boils down to, to concrete actions and maybe not so, so complex actions. Just sit down and talk to the company, see what are you guys doing and start from there. Do I see any other hands waving? Uh, anyone else who wants to ask a question? Uh, or should we allow the panelists to ask each other questions? <laughs> this is your opportunity. Um, Marlene, I had a response to that, <laughs> if I may, but I'm, not, I'm, I'm like, uh, I've spoken a lot. Is there anyone else? We have a second question. Yeah. And uh, perhaps related to um, civic space and violence against human rights defenders. Yes. Um, what can we do concretely, everybody here in this room, to help uh, the human rights defenders in the Philippines? Well, uh, first and foremost, I think uh, there, there should really be more awareness of what, what's happening in, in our country. And uh, for, for people who are really uh, interested to, uh, to support uh, support us, support the struggles. Every time there's an incidence of killing, we always issue out through social media support and pressure government to really stop, stop these human rights violations. I think these little things like sending messages to the pressure, pressuring our government or pressuring your government to pressure the Philippine government, of course, it pieces off our president, but I think that, that's the only way we can do it. I know that yeah, the president even quarreled with special rapporteurs of the UN, even threatened UN that the Philippines will get out of the UN. Uh, it's really crazy, but uh, I think such, such pressures uh, will really go a long way because we, we will also be doing uh, our pressures on the ground at uh, risk of also, again, facing through uh, violations, again, of, of, uh, of our rights there. But these things really have to be done. And uh, I think the, uh, I've also, from a few days of my stay here, I've also heard about uh, uh, pressures also coming that can be made through, through businesses. 
uh, like the instance, the, the plan of the Make ICT Fair, like uh, uh, lobbying uh, procurers of uh, ICT to uh, ensure that uh, the, the final products really come from uh, the, the manufacturers, ensure that their source of minerals mm -hmm. actually uh, are not tainted with the uh, poor human rights uh, records or uh, poor environmental standards. I know it's really quite difficult because, you know, uh, mining co companies, mining operations really get into dodgy uh, agreements, dodgy deals. But I think uh, that there's a way, there's really a will. So I think, uh, yeah, uh, for Swedish public, I think uh, maybe you can also think of ways, but we, we really just, uh, we need you to pressure government through either your governments or through manufacturers, uh, even through uh, civil society, your professionals, maybe they can also help us because uh, we, we need also legal legal assistance. We need expertise because actually the burden of proof on the uh, pollution, on the destruction, always some uh, are put back to the people to prove that the mining companies are doing wrong because they always escape blame. It's always force majeure. It's always super typhoon that's causing all these mine spills and all these landslides in the in, in the country. I think such kind of uh, volunteer or support to, to Philipp, uh, countries like the Philippines, uh, I think it will really go a long way. And it's really not just the Philippines because uh, we have formed this Asia-Pacific network of environmental defenders. And we've seen uh, how similar our situation is with others. It's just that uh, we have this uh, macho, uh, crazy president that we have who uh, really immediately kills, and so we have a higher record, but such is actually also replicated in India. We see this also in Myanmar, uh, in several, in, in Indonesia, these things happen. And I think such a flow of uh, volunteerism, concern for countries like ours is, will really go a long way. Jakob, you had a, well, well, I, I, a reflection on that. Maybe it would be interesting to hear what your dialogue is like with the Filipino government. I, I, yeah. I, I, I couldn't <laughs> tell because I, I'm too new at the work. But I, uh, I hear a lot, and I, it was also the case uh, when we talked about mining. It, it's a, it, like you said, it's, it's a very pollutive type of, of industry. Yeah. Uh, but it's also being handled in different ways. There are different technologies. There are Swedish companies that will recycle the water in a mine up to 99%. You can use the same water over and over again instead of spilling it to the, to the, to the but it costs a little bit. The solution is technological, but the companies that's running don't want to use it. Of course. Uh, and, and that is the question. How do we also make sure that an extractive industry is, is pricing in the cost of doing uh, sustainable production? Uh, and this is very frustrating in, in everything you do uh, as a Swedish ambassador. You come forward with this technical solution, whether it be waste that can be burnt into energy and used as uh, heating for housing, and then you try to export that model, but the country you're working is not ready for different reasons. It may be vested interest. Same with the industry. Our companies come forward with the most sophisticated uh, solutions in transportation, the highest you know, electri electrification of buses or what have you. But the countries we're working with are not on that development level. Our so time's I think, up, but yeah. I think Francis yeah. must get an opportunity yeah. to respond to this yeah. idea yeah. Of, uh, of responsible We, we believe that there is really science, science and technology development. Yeah. It can really teach us uh, uh, companies to really do their work. If they just do the due diligence, yeah. use this to whatever development and technology uh, is available, to really do their acts well. But uh, as we know, uh, companies are really profit-driven, and especially if they are really after super, super profits or running up uh, uh, after uh, the big uh, uh, high price of metals in the uh, abroad. So it's also always the social and environmental costs that are always scrimped or uh, reduced, that's why we have these disasters going on uh, around us. Mm -hmm. they, they, they don't, they, we, have, we may have the technology, but they are indeed not, not being used by companies, and it's really bad that even our government cannot even uh, check this, these problems with mm -hmm. companies. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Our time is unfortunately up. Now we had more, but thank you so much. Thank you, Molly. Jakob, Louisa, Bashkut, and Francis. That was the Violence Against Human Rights Defenders and the Role of Business Seminar at this year's MR Dagener in Stockholm, Sweden. This has been On Human Rights and we hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to find out more about the Raoul Wallenby Institute's work, check out our website at www.rwi.lu.se. Thank you for listening.